I'm Rosie Maddio, and welcome to From Pot to Popular, a new podcast where we interview the media, marketers, and moguls who are mainstreaming cannabis. Welcome to today's episode of Pot to Popular. I'm your host, Rosie Maddio. Today, we are joined by Matt Hawkins, founder and managing director of Entourage Effect Capital. Entourage Effect Capital is one of the most prolific investment funds in the space. They've invested in over 60 companies and have over 175 million assets under management. Matt's going to join us today to talk about his investment approach and their thoughts on what 2021 will bring for the cannabis industry. Welcome, Matt. Thanks, Rosie. How are you? I'm good. It's great to have you here today. Um, we, have, we love working with your team, um, and I'm excited to chat with you about your history in this space. So I do want to start with the background. You know, you manage one of the most visible and successful investment groups in the cannabis industry. Um, so I'd love if you give the listeners a brief overview of Entourage Effect Capital and just the founding story, why you started it six years ago. Tell us, you know, the founding of it. Sure. So <clears throat> it was uh, really luck and timing more than anything else. I had had an exit with um, another private equity deal that I was involved with. And after 20 some odd years of, of doing various things in, in private equity, I was then now looking for my next foray. And, in two, and it was in 14 when the laws changed in Colorado, Oregon, and Washington. And so I started seeing um, real estate lending deals in Denver from warehouse owners that wanted to refinance their mortgages out of commercial debt into private debt so they could then lease their facilities to growers. And I mean, I knew nothing about cannabis at the time, but that luck and timing moment was recognizing that the yields on the real estate lending would dry up. But I figured that the operating companies in the cannabis space themselves would have a hard time raising money because they were doing something that was federally illegal. So just tried to get comfortable with, um, with that framework, started putting together some capital. Now fast forward to 2000 and now 21, we've made you know, over 65 investments in the industry. It's pretty incredible, right? You know, in such a nascent industry, like to have be like so prolific in the space and seen so many of the deals. Um, it's it's pretty cool to you know see how you guys have grown. And I also just want to talk a little bit more about background. So you know, many veterans of the finance sector enter enter the cannabis space not because necessarily 100% because of business opportunities, which we know are there, but also because they have a personal connection to the plant. Was there like a distinct moment when you're working in private equity where you came to understand the holistic benefits of, of cannabis? Not really. Um, it, that happened to me after the fact. Uh, at the beginning, it was just simply an economic opportunity and one that I thought we could. There was a, you know, there was a, there was an arbitrage. There was an opportunity to invest and get outsized returns simply because of the federal illegality. And I just had to get comfortable with the risk associated with that. Um, the the kind of the, the the romance with the plant, so to speak, came later when- I like that term, by the um, way, romance with the plants. I'm gonna, I'm gonna start using that, by the way. This is very good. I just got the top of my head. I kind of like it too. Uh, so uh, my mom has fibromyalgia and years and years ago, she was uh, prescribed opioids and you know, she didn't know any better. She just did what the doctor told her to do. And, you know, she effectively got hooked on it. And so now she's doesn't take a lick of opioids, but she takes uh, cannabis and um, it's primarily coming from me. 
And so, <laughs> I mean, I'm, again, I guess I'm breaking the law, bringing it back to her, but that's okay. I'm, I'm happy to do it. And, uh, and that's, so that to me is a, you know, that obviously brought it home and realized that there are some amazing benefits to the plant. And, uh, and it's, it's opened my eyes a bit more to the, the social aspects of the, of the business as well. I, I always talk about this well. When I started also, I saw this as a business opportunity, but you really can't help once you hear the story or you have like a personal experience, just become like an advocate. It's it just part of, you know, the specialness of working in cannabis. So I, I think a lot of people echo that sentiment while you come in for the opportunity, you really become, you know, that advocate. And so, you know, just to talk a little bit about, you know, the fund and the size. So it's consistently listed as one of the top, you know, cannabis investment firms. But more and more firms are entering the space because obviously it's growing mainstream popularity, you know, the tailwinds of the election and COVID. How do you guys, how does your investment philosophy differ from other firms, right? And, and what other sub- kinds of resources can portfolio companies get from EEC that they can't get for everyone else? Why there still is a value proposition to invest in, 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 in funds like EEC? So I would say because we've been along, around a long, you know, a long, long time, uh, there's several things that, that that benefit us because of that. One, there isn't anybody in the industry that we don't know, um, and we typically have an opinion on those people. You know, good, bad, or indifferent. Uh, there's a lot of interesting characters in the space, and I think there's um, you know a handful of, of of good, solid operators and good, solid uh, investors that like to work together, and um, we know who those people are. Um, and it's a cottage community. Once you do something that's that, that can send some signals across the industry, it's hard to get your reputation back. And, and we see it a lot, and it's unfortunate. Um, we have avoided that, and we, we always take the high road. And I think if you ask all of our portfolio companies, they would all agree with that. And that's, that's, that's the proof of the pudding right there. Um, and our investors. Um, so that's number one. Number two, we, because we have this many investments and because we've you know amassed uh, some pretty significant dollars under management we have a large team and the the, the value that our team brings um, is directly proportional to the value that we bring to each company that we've invested in um, if you're just starting it's it's t- tricky for two reasons one what i just said is if you, if you start out and you only have a few people on your team it's hard to um, it's hard to bring the value that that you want and need to to your companies, and then secondly, you don't have access to the deal flow that that those of us that have been around the longest have. I mean, it's hard to break into this uh, because um, you don't know where the bodies are buried. You don't know where the where the wheat has been separated from the chaff, and that's that's what we luckily know and, and know well. Yeah, and, and listen, you guys have been doing this since 2014, and you've deployed over $125 million into the space across the 66 companies that we just talked about. So talk to us, you know, you mentioned the term cottage industry, so, and, and you know, knowing where the bodies are buried. So how have your investment strategies and priorities changed as industries becoming more sophisticated? You've been in some, from the beginning, we're seeing these bigger and better operators coming into the space. So how has that changed your investment strategy or has it not? Have you guys always stuck to the same ethos? I'd love to sort of understand the trajectory of the firm and how you guys think about investing. Sure, um, it has definitely changed for, um, from the standpoint of, you know, in the early days we were, I mean, we were investing in the beginning of the, of the value chain. So back in 2014 and 15, 
we made a lot of investments just on like, you know, cultivation plays. And so as we've matured through, you know, fund two, or, well, I can't say the word fun as we've matured through our, uh, our, 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 our legacy of investment platforms, we have, you know, gone up the value chain and we've, uh, you know, invested in brands, we've invested in biosynthesis, technology plays. Um, and then we've invested in multi-channel retailers and vertically integrated players at manufacturing. Fun, uh, the next generation is going to be building scale to where we are absolutely going to uh, try to create scale with our existing companies and companies that are coming into the fold where we're writing bigger checks to uh, to build that scale in advance of legalization, which I think we all know now is probably, you know, closer to a reality than it was, you know, prior to November and then prior to the Georgia uh, runoff. So now whether or not that's in two, three, four years um, remains to be seen, but I think we're closer than we've ever been from a uh, legislative reform um, to where it's, you know, it's going to be beneficial to the industry. Yeah, and you're talking about, you know, next generation and scale. And, you know, many cannabis investors, including yourself, and you guys have been talking about, like, the rise of M&A, you know, probably with these tailwinds of, of the election um, and, and all the things that happened with COVID, right? So we know that's likely going to ramp in 21. And, you know, you were just appointed Harborside chairman of the board. Do you have any insight into what more seasoned operators are looking for in potential acquisitions, out that you're sort of looking at this from, like, an operator type of lens? Well, that's a good question. Um, I will say this. Since I've been chairman of Harborside, I've, I've, I've been able to see it through kind of the, the, the maturation of the industry from a different lens, kind of from the operating company standpoint. And, and as an example, um, you know, we just engaged our uh, uh, hydrogen struggles to lead the uh, CEO search for, for, for Harborside. And the, the quality of candidates that are coming in right away um, are more just robust, you know, candidates that, that, I, that I would ever imagine, you know, prior to, you know, two, three years ago. I mean, it's guys that have women that have CPG experience that have, you know, non-cannabis related success stories that are, you know, C-level uh, veterans that want to come into the space, in our space to, to make, you know, to, to add their experience and value. And I think that is that is huge. I think that's happening across the industry is the, the level of talent that's coming into the industry is something like we haven't seen before. Yeah. And, you know, and speaking about that, right, so that the quality of people coming into the space and, and as relates to you guys, you know, r- running a fund, cannabis is growing, obviously, mainstream appeal. We're seeing all these experts coming to the space. We're also seeing more institutional investors and increasing number of trusts and endowments actually now investing in cannabis. Do you and your peers believe their involvement is a boon to the industry, or do you have any reservations about some of these other, you know, types of investors coming into the space? How are you feeling about like all of the chatter that's happening right now? Well, I think, um, I mean, the industry needs it. I mean, the industry needs large swaths of capital to come in to take it to the next level. And I think anybody that's a participant in the industry right now will benefit from that. As a manager of funds, it's, uh, you know, it's probably a, a catch 22 for us. I mean, we could either partner with them and put entities together to, to, to manage or we could compete with them. And I think that's, you know, I think that the, the latter doesn't make a whole lot of sense because um, if we can work together and, and use our expertise to help them make the, 
the right investment choices, and I think everybody wins. Right, and and also like you know, as somebody who is so experienced, and like you said, there's catch twenty two. But obviously, you know, we believe there probably will be partnership. You know, at least in the near term, while things shake out on the regulatory side of things. What do you think are some of the top red flags, like newbies in the industry, newbies coming into investing industry, should watch out for? Like as somebody who's really watched everything happen. Oh well, um, probably with anything, I would say is uh, making sure that the management teams are underwritten. You know with every I dotted and every T crossed because that that's that's if you're backing management teams like like we do um that's you know that that's the most important thing that that you can do um if you're just and shout out to Andraj and our, our girl Tiffany you know you guys have a pretty robust um underwriting process which I do think is one of the things that's, that's very special about EEC like they really have a staple of of people like doing the back end of it which is pretty yeah, cool to I watch mean, we're, 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 we you know, everybody makes mistakes. We have two, but one thing we can do, if there is something that comes up with, with an investment that we either didn't see in the underwrite or it was a bust in the underwrite, which happens, we have the team to to make up for that. And because we can, we do, when necessary, we can get involved operationally to to try to fix things or make things better. But yeah, I mean, obviously having a core team to invest out of, I mean, that's important too, just for the reasons we just said. So. Uh, you know, it's it, it, anytime you, you're nascent in an industry that you're you're investing in a, in a nascent industry and you're a nascent investor in that industry, you're going to have some hiccups. And so, um, working with groups like us, and there's only a handful of us that've been around a long time. Um, I think is the right the right thing to do. Yeah, and and I want to talk about you know some of your predictions and the future of the industry. But in terms of, of nascent, right? I do want to go back. Do you think there are any sectors with, within the larger legal cannabis ecosystem that are still underdeveloped or nascent that need more innovation or capital? Like, what are you guys seeing out there where you think are real opportunities um, for development? Well, I call, I mean, I'll use an energy term and just call it the, uh, you know, the midstream. And um, there's a lot of, you know, in fact, almost all the midstream sectors of the industry, you know, have some maturation to do. And that's, you know anything from you know the technology the you know the to the biosynthesis genetics to even just the picks and shovels and manufacturing all, all of those all those subsectors can use more innovation more capital more acceptance um, you know there's still you know on the technology side you know there's a lot of big technology firms that that don't touch the cannabis space and until they do you're you're really just in a moment of you're trying to build your customer base to sell to those guys. That's not a bad business strategy, but right. you're never going to be able to compete on the the true nuts and bolts of the technology with the big boys because you don't have the capital to do it. So you're really effectively just building a business that you can sell. Now, for an investor and for a management team that has the skin in the game, that's a good thing. But it may not be the best thing for the end users because they they don't have access to that. Um, you know, to those systems that, that the big boys do. Yeah. And that's to the detriment of the industry, but that's just the way it is. And we all are accustomed to, to working it that way because we know that until it's legal at a federal level or quasi federal legal, that, you know, companies that are, that are listed on the NASDAQ and New York Stock Exchange can't touch it. Yeah, and uh, just supporting those businesses while they still have a hand behind their back, you know, I, I think is you know a testament to what you guys do, being able to support j during the, this growth phase, and also just in terms of you know 
you know, hands tied by our back or a little bit of, of, a, of a headwind, you're actually, you're, you're firm or actually you are based in Dallas, right? That, that a region that hasn't fully embraced the industry yet. I know we're hearing, you know, some entries in the space and with the parallels of the world. What unique perspective um, have you gained from investing from this location? And what predictions do you have for your home state over the next year or so, right? It's like, a, to, you know, typically a, a red state. It, it's been one of the slower adopters. Give us your perspective on, on Texas. Well, I will say that the level of acceptance with what I do and just the use of the product in general in Texas from what I've seen has gone up dramatically since 2014. Um, unfortunately, the uh, folks in the state house don't see it the same way. The, um, we have a very, very, very conservative lieutenant governor who runs the Senate in the state of Texas, and he just has no interest in bringing any marijuana legislation to the to the Senate floor, um, short of what's already there, which is just a very you know limited medicinal sliver of legality. Um, there's a whole host of bills that have been, I think over 150 bills have been proposed in this session that's going on right now. Um, but I don't see any of them making any real progress, which is, which is unfortunate because they're leaving just crazy amounts of money on the table. And Texas has a robust illicit market, just like any other state. And why not convert that and through taxing and, and regul- regulation of it. It just makes no sense. Yeah, I, I think that, um, you know, over the next you know, couple of years, we're hearing so many, you know, of the states talk about really putting their programs in uh, in place. Hopefully, you know, states like Texas will have a little bit of FOMO and realize that they can be putting, you know, real money within the state. Um, but there is some, you know, exciting on, on the national side of things. You know, the incoming administration and the Democratic Senate, you know, none of us could really anticipate that Georgia was 100% going to go blue. So there's a lot of exuberance, obviously, in the space. Um, so how does this new administration affect your long-term investment priorities at all? Or it, does it or does it not? And also, um, apart from safe and more, which will create you know considerable financial tailwinds for the cannabis companies, what other federal or local piece of legislation do you guys have your eye on right now? Um, that's a lot, Rosie. Sorry, I should have split it in two <laughs> questions, but I got very excited. I mean, today it happens to be inauguration day, so there's a, you know a lot of chatter going on right now. So I'd love to sort of um, see what you're thinking about take, the new administration. Let's, let's, take, let's take the last question first. I think the other thing that we look at obviously is the States Act because if that could pass. That's probably the easiest, you know, obviously the State Banking Act, you know, that if we can get that done, that's great. But in terms of a, you know, sweeping legislative reform, I think the States Act is probably easier than the Moore Act because it just would effectively give the states the power to do what they want. And that that's really all the industry needs. Um, and I think ultimately at the beginning of legalization, that's what it's going to look like anyway, because a lot of states like California have no interest in giving up any of that tax revenue. Right. So they don't want cultivation to come from other states. They want to keep it in house, and and fair enough, you know. But and we just operate under those confines. But we would have the ability to bring in, you know, a hell of a lot of money to to from institutions to to make that uh, doable. Um, in terms of what we're looking at, um, it really it. it nothing changes other than because our strategy still is to build that scale whether we get legal in two years or or five years but um, I think think the speed in which we need to do it has just uh, increased and so we're just got heads down trying to grind and you know put the money in place and uh, have the deals in place to uh, 
you know, to provide our investors the best return possible. Yeah, and um, and then, you know, like I said, today is, is inauguration day. We're, we're talking uh, on the 20th. Uh, so what is what are your predictions for 21? Like, what are you most, not even predictions, what are you most excited about in 21, you know, for the funds? Like, what should we all be looking ahead for with, with EEC? Well, we've touched upon it. There's no doubt consolidation is going to continue to occur. And there's no doubt there's going to be transformative M&A across public and uh, private sectors within the industry. Um, in fact, I think you'll likely see more large deals done that way than you will with with any new startup opportunity that comes across the, uh, the board. I just think that that's, while there will be new companies coming online, they're not going to get the attention that the large-scale investments have the opportunity to, uh, to provide. Yeah. So talk to us a little bit about, you know, what, what are your plans for 21 for the fund, right? So what were you guys going to be looking for the biggest opportunities for, for 21? Where do you think they are for you guys? Yeah, so it's going to be a combination of, of, I keep harping on the word scale, but it really is what we live and die by right now. I mean, we, we every company that wants to be gobbled up by the big pharma, tobacco, alcohol, uh, nutraceutical, CPG, or just straight institutional capital has got to be big enough to get their attention. So with all of our portfolio companies, plus all the companies that we plan on investing in, that's front and center in our minds. And whether it's scale with capital, scale with capital plus uh, business combinations, or just you know straight business combinations, that, that's what has to happen. And, and so that's where we are squarely focused on, on you know, getting our companies and getting our soon-to-be companies at that point to be attractive for um, what's really a built-in exit strategy for the industry. Right, and I love that. And I don't think there's anybody who is more equipped with as many investments as you guys have in the, in the space and your hands in so many different parts of the industry to have that happen. So Matt, thanks so much for joining us today. Hopefully you'll come back at the end of the year and we'll see how everything, you know, it has, has shaken out and um, good luck in 21. Thanks, Rosie. You too. Enjoyed being on.